0: During lockdown, I've been recording a series of conversations with a range of people discussing their journeys and life in 2020. The discussions have formed my new podcast series, Pearl Conversations. Joining me for this week's episode is former England player and current director of women's football at Aston Villa, Eni Aluko. We called up in May to discuss life in lockdown, her career in football, the development of the women's game, and the influences her Nigerian heritage have had on her life. Eddie, thank you very much for coming on. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on your platform. What's the official name?
0: Pearl Conversations. Power oh,
1: conversation. Oh, yeah, power <laughs> conversation.
0: <laughs> and I
1: feel how? very, I feel very um privileged with this very professional setup. You. <laughs>
0: well, you don't have to come correct if I'm talking to you. You know. I <laughs> Sorry, to
1: I didn't be... dress for the occasion.
0: Oh, no, no, no worries. Um, how have you been during coronavirus? During COVID, how's things been?
1: Oh, that's a loaded question. It's um, I think the first few weeks I enjoyed it. Um, certainly the first month I really enjoyed it because I was at home with my family well I was at home for eight weeks but the first month that I was at home I was loving it because I haven't haven't been at home like lived with my family for over 15 years oh well wow. so it was kind of a new experience you know waking up you know home cooked food yeah waking up doing fitness Um, and I kind of got into a routine I've kept working as well I've continued working as well so I've kept busy but I think at this point, I'm just kind of like, I just feel very like I've got itchy feet, like I, I want to yeah. have human contact. I want yeah. to Um And that might sound insensitive because obviously, you know, we're in a we're in a crisis where people are dying every day. Um, yeah. But the reality is, is that, you know, there's gratitude one minute where you're like, I'm yeah. you're lying. And then there's kind of selfish human. I'm just wanna, I just want to I just want to yeah my friends and go to a nice restaurant and go traveling um so it's been ups and downs to be honest with you
0: yeah we're all human um like for me it's kind of been like a little bit the opposite like at first i was like struggling with it like i was like really bored i think i lacked a bit of like purpose lacked a bit of like drive um then after about a week or two i kind of got into the flow um, then I started like actually really enjoying it <laughs> um, started really enjoying it. but now I think again I think I'm quite similar I'm, I'm at the period where I would quite like to like get out start um, even if you can't do everything but like to start like seeing people like yeah, one thing yeah. like just the joys of like interacting with other people like I've seen the same two people who I live with like or <laughs> every day for two months now so
1: i think we're at that point i do think we're at that point where we can kind of start to see like one yeah. one, you know, i i i saw a friend the other day um we sort of played socially distanced bingo and um, <laughs> bingo in my life but um it was just nice to be able to do it with other people that i haven't mm. met, never met before and um i ended up winning
0: <laughs> well, it was, winning okay. was all about.
1: I had day! I was like, who would have known that I would end up in lockdown playing bingo and winning. how
0: <laughs> uh, how's the impact been on, on like the female game in terms of football? Because I know, like, not not all sports are as lucrative as like men's football and like. Yeah. I, I know in terms of like rugby, rugby's taken a huge hit and, you know, there's talk of some clubs like the possibility of going under. So I was wondering what it would be like on the football side, on the female well, it's side. The same.
1: It's obviously the same in the men's game. I think that men's rugby has the same situation as, as lower league when men's football, where there's a huge dependency on audience income and, and gate receipts. Um, I think the Premier League has the luxury and the privilege of not having such a reliance on gate receipts because there's there's you know there's money coming in from different angles TV and commercial um, actually the women's game in terms of the financial hit it's it's been minimal because we don't have fans coming through the gates every week the games so. have got the point yet so actually it it hasn't had a sort of a huge financial impact where it's like there's a suction from the game um But I think that the tripping point has been how we kind of exist and play on in a system where players have to be tested. Everybody has to be tested. Um, I think that's where the women's game probably isn't as professional and and, and actually doesn't have the finances to fund it. Um, So that's why the the league got cancelled. But actually, you know, certainly in my role as sporting director now, there's actually some interesting opportunities ahead for women's football because now we've reached a playing field where football is behind closed doors so if football is behind closed doors to a huge population of people who are sat at home wanting to watch football that doesn't necessarily matter what what football it is you know so actually we, we've probably got a better chance of being seen now um, in terms of on tv than we probably yeah. would do within the sort of saturated market of football on a normal day so there's some there's some interesting opportunities but we just have to figure out you know what the next six months look like
0: and how have you found um like being sporting director at Aston Villa like that's that's quite that's quite how how long have you how long have you you been in that role
1: literally where are we now we're we're nearly in June so three months
0: yeah so Um, how's that been
1: it's been great. I've loved it, to be honest with you. And it's, it's, it's a role that I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, I did a master's with the UEFA to kind of understand what the role meant. And a lot of sporting directors around the world gave a lot of classes based on their experiences. So I was oh. able to take a lot and apply it to my own knowledge. Um, there was no coronavirus um, manual there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I retired from football in January. I went on holiday for two months and then bang, I started in March, within a week, coronavirus hit. Like within a week, we're in lockdown. Games got canceled, like all the recruitment stuff then became really conditional. And it, it just, it it was deep end straight away, pretty much. Yeah. But actually in a way I'm quite grateful because it made all decision-making quite sharp and quite um, important. Um, you know, working within a team, working within a club, you know, there's no sort of honeymoon period, it's just like, yeah. and now I feel like actually moving forward, I can probably deal with, you know, nothing's going to surprise me now, If, yeah. if you know. um, so I'm great, I'm kind of grateful for it, how it started.
0: And like age-wise, compared to other sporting directors, like you must be the youngest, if not Amongst the youngest in in that type of
1: yeah role. probably the youngest. looking <laughs> really, by
0: like a long way.
1: Probably by like, a long way, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think there's any other female footballers that are sporting directors, so I think that's the first.
0: Even um, in the female side.
1: Uh yeah, so like in England, I know one in Germany, who was on my course, but I, I'm not sure how many players go straight into sporting director roles. But yeah, I'm very young. I'm very young in the role. And um, I'm trying not to think about that too much because I think when you, when you think too much about all the things that could potentially trip you up, it does trip you up. So yeah. I, I lean on the fact that I have a legal background. Yeah. Uh, I lean on the fact that I have a wealth of experience in the game playing. So I have a big understanding with players. Um, I lean on sort of my own commercial career in terms of, you know, negotiations with brands and you know what does it look like for me versus what does it look like for the brand so I'm not you know there's no reinventing the wheel you just apply that experience to you know a club um, um,
0: and what was your cause I always find like obviously being an athlete myself I always find like other athletes journey towards retirement like like very interesting in terms of how they were thinking about it, like the steps they took to prepare themselves for whatever. Um, like, did you know this was exactly what you wanted to do? Because I know you have, you studied law and have a legal background and, and still, am, still are an acting yeah. lawyer.
1: So for me, the, the thought of not having a purpose after I finished playing was quite terrifying for me. But that drove me a lot during my playing career so from when I was I finished my law degree um, at 21 went to America came back I've been in education and I always had it in mind that you know I'm preparing for my life after football what does my life look like it was always at like the front of my mind because I know that it's a short career I know that you know you could have got injured at any point you could get you know. might not get a contract, whatever that may be, you know that Plan B and having those different lanes that you you go down was something that's always been on my mind. Um, so when it came to retiring, I felt very comfortable actually, um, and I, you know people would say I probably retired a little bit early at 32, um, but for me, I always wanted to retire at the top of the game and then straight away go into something else. Um, I didn't really want to ponder about it too much. Um, obviously, I had a bit of a holiday, but yeah. Where would you go on holiday? <laughs> I went to Ghana in at new oh, wow I turn up like I had the best time, and then I went to Jamaica for a retreat, which is more like Zen yeah holiday. but so i had a, I had a good three months off um but yeah to in answer to your question i I prepared for about in terms of the long game I prepared for maybe about ten years but in terms of knowing when I was going to retire, I probably knew about a year before and was going back and forth with it. Um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how old you are.
0: 25.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't think there's anything too early to start to think about what you're doing. I mean, even what you're doing now, you know what I mean? This platform that you've created, it's something else aside from you playing rugby, you know what I mean? And it's, Mm. It gives you that ability to go, okay, when I finish playing, what what do I love to do? What else is my passion point? Because, you know, we're pretty cool people, athletes, and we've got a lot to do and a lot to say. And we've got a lot of influence. And I think sometimes it gets wasted because footballers and rugby players, in your case, just think that that's all they can do.
0: How do you think the, how do you think, do you think it's widespread, like, like future planning in in, yeah. in the female game because yeah. like it, with with like if you compare it to like male footballers obviously they earn an exuberant amount of money which kind of in a way gives them a certain type of cushion from a financial point of view but not from a not from like a mental point of view whereas obviously the female game and rugby's relatively similar yeah. in the sense that you, you you need to go into a second career um post
1: um, yeah, I think you're right in making the distinction between obviously men's football and women's football and well, men's football, full stop. Um, I think even with financial planning, like you still need to plan ahead. Yeah. What your, what, you, what, what your income streams are, you know, um, whether it's making sure that you're putting all your money in property or are you buying a pub? Are you, yeah. you know, building building properties, you're going to go into development, you're going to go into business. Like, This all needs to be conversations that are stimulated whilst you're playing, rather than going, I don't care about anything else, i got loads of money, I'm going to buy loads of cars, and then boom, when you retire, it's like, oh, who am I? What do I do? Um, so I think it's actually the responsibility of clubs to really engage. I think
0: so. because I, I feel as if, no matter what clubs do, it's is the individual
1: maybe right. not maybe not clubs as in like you like you must do this class and you yeah. have to sit down but i think it's something that clubs can bring in in terms of programs so for example like aston villa from the get go i'm passionate about supporting players in their education so whether it's the club paying for education whether it's the club subsidizing education you're instinctively saying to players your future life and your off the field life matters to us and we're going to help you do it. Now that might look differently in men's football or men's rugby, but at least uh, try and stimulate that conversation, you know, bring in a financial advisor. Look, if players are clever enough to have their own, that's fine. But where you see that there's a lot of players that don't care that much, try and, draw it out of them. Create a you framework. Know, you know, you, you don't know yeah, create a framework. You don't know what's gonna engage people. Some players might love love art, might love music, you know, I don't know, but I think I think to ignore it is is a mistake. Even you know, even players who whilst they're playing can be part of a decision making process, can be part of board consultations, you know we've seen even during this period where players got together and said okay we'll put in a fund of money together for the NHS. Players aren't stupid. Yeah. They're not daft you know so the, the engagement between the people that run the game and players that could be much better too. It's not just players on the field here and we make the decisions here. A lot of people who play the game understand understand the game and can be part of that decision making process so that's also something that I'd love to see more players being part of.
0: I would like to talk about your book, They Don't Teach This. I've been reading it. Um, Thank in previous, you. Yeah. Oh, thanks
1: so much to me. Thank you.
0: It's, I found it really, really interesting on a number of levels. Um, one of them being like your upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. One thing, like so you were born in Nigeria, but pretty much raised in Birmingham, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. Where's your Brummy accent? It's gone.
0: Because <laughs> 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 uh, obviously we've met before. And when when I when when I was um, like reading the book, I was like, "Said she was born in Birmingham." I was like, "I could not have <laughs> says in you know
1: It's one of those accents that like it's it's easily changeable, if that makes sense. Like sometimes you hear it, but you have to be listening hard enough. Yeah. Um, and I've been in London for just so long, but I do have it. Like when if I'm annoyed or you know, if I'm around my family, sometimes you might hear it. Um, But yeah, born in Nigeria, I'm the only one in my family, only sibling that was born in Nigeria, which I'm very proud of. Um, Um, So born in Nigeria, yeah, came here when I was less, younger than one. Um,
0: And like, I I like drew parallels to myself, um, hmm. because I wasn't born in Nigeria, but I was raised, raised in North London with like very Nigerian p- parents who like what is very Nigerian Very Nigerian. I think it means like because I feel as if I was raised in like Nigerian. I lived I lived in I lived in London but my house was like Lagos. <laughs> <laughs> I love so,
1: that I love
0: that so like because like all like the amount of times that like my 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 parents, my mum in particular, like her friends and stuff will come over. Uh, like cousins will come over. The food we ate was predominantly all Nigerian, um, and I thought it was like really interesting. Like in your book, like the dynamics you had with like your family, mm-hmm. um, particularly with your mother, who yes, for the most part. Um, was with you during your formative years growing up
1: yeah she was a very um wise woman uh, my mom's a very wise woman and, and I think I'm very grateful to her because I think in terms of Nigerian culture she would probably be forgiven to be quite um you know anti-girls football you know what, what I just focus on book you know <laughs> Whereas she wasn't really like that you know she kind of just let my talent blossom and come out of me, um, because it was a bit odd. You know, I, I grew up with all boys. Uh, you know, in the local area, I didn't really know what how I became this really good footballer. It was just something God popped inside me, and I was able to play. And I didn't see anyone else like me. So it could have been. It would have been easy for her um, to say, you know, just just leave this this kind of weird hobby that you've got. But she was complete opposite um so she really encouraged my talent and you know let me play with my brother and um so growing up as a tomboy nigerian tomboy um wasn't wasn't the sort of experience it could have been you -hmm. know i speak to young girls all the time who are you know tomboys of ethnic minorities and the grief that they get from their families particularly muslim girls is really difficult. And I always think, gosh, I didn't have that experience. I think where the sort of Nigerian um, culture started to rub against me was when it was extended family. Mm -hmm. And and this is the other thing, my mom would always kind of try and defend me and try and like shape the conversation. So particularly with my grandma, you know, Mm -hmm. my grandma never really got her head around the football thing until I was on TV, obviously. That's when they're like, ah, that's my... (laughs) (laughs) My (laughs) (laughs) All Nigerian parents are the same, trust me. Um, But before the TV thing, it was kind of like, oh, what's this? So I kind of had to say, oh, I'm playing tennis, which I did. That wasn't really a lie. But I wasn't playing tennis to the extent I was saying I was playing tennis. I was playing football. So that was a way of appeasing the culture. You know, and it, it was wrong, really. Um, but that's where I I didn't feel comfortable in my Nigerianness. Yeah, it, you
0: know, it was it was interesting because uh, I remember there was a passage in your book where you were talking about um, I think your I can't remember either. You went you were in Nigeria or your grandparents came over to England, and like I think it was your grandfather and your father went out to watch you play football. Yeah. <laughs> and you came back and you we and of, had everyone everyone was excited, but you had to wait until your grandma was left the room, they everyone started. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy.
1: It's crazy. I at it now. I'm like, why did we do that? But <laughs> I guess we just didn't really want to have that awkward conversation. Yeah. You know, and it, look, even in England, you know, I grew up in the 90s. Even in England it wasn't accepted. Yeah. Um, so let alone a more kind yeah. of traditional
0: because in, in, in Nigeria, I I feel as if they see sport differently. I feel as if um, mm. with Nigerians, like, obviously, they, they love football, especially, like, up, upper-class Nigerians. They love football, but they – I think they would – if they had a choice, they would probably prefer their children to go into business or be,
1: yeah.
0: be a doctor or be a lawyer, something that has, like – academic pedigree or something they don't really see um sport and that's for us for, and that's for males let alone like how they see it for for females um yeah,
1: definitely a preference there's hmm. definitely a preference and and i you know th- that choice i actually at one point i just thought i'm just going to do both so that either way i'm good and so i never gave up football but i knew there was no choice i had to go to university i had to you know yeah, yeah. Kind of make myself feel like um i was doing the right thing by my family um you know i come from on my mom's side my my grandfather's a professor on my dad's side my grandfather's a professor um so i come from that expectation almost and and it, yeah. it's it's an invisible one nobody said you must be a professor but it, yeah. you, 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 you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree yeah. you, you, you see it and you want to you want to do it so um for me I, I i didn't feel like i really had a choice and i wanted yeah. to educate myself i wanted to go yeah. to university and i think that's the that's the reality for most nigerians i think now though it might be a slightly different now when you see the likes of Wizkid, you know um coming from a, a, a poorer background and becoming a global superstar the next whiz kid that's coming through, it's going to be an easier conversation. Yeah, because it has
0: someone to point to. Because
1: it's like, well, whiz kid didn't go to university, and look at him. So the more we, you know, the more the the culture evolves, the easier it is for the next generation to just do what they they want to do. You know, whether you want to be an artist. Mm -hmm. I have a friend of mine who is an incredible artist. Um, Dennis Okafo, I don't know if you've heard of him. Incredible African artist. I've
0: heard
1: um, of it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's
0: sort
1: of he's a family friend. And, um, you know, he, he went to uni, did his education, but he was always an artist. And I remember saying to him, Dennis, I didn't know you were an artist. Like, where has this come from? And he's like, well, you know, I didn't really have the scope to express it that much until I kind of grew up, grew up, did my education. So sometimes it can be too late. You know so we gotta we got to try and figure that out we've got to try and encourage our next generation to tap into the the, the the hobbies that they're doing as well alongside you know the education
0: because so that reminds me of, um, of a story that I had I was at I was at boarding school at the time I think I must have been I uh, must have been must have been about 17 18 and so it was my last year of school and it was by the time we're doing like UCAS applications and I was speaking to my dad about some of the unis that I want to apply to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also at that time, I, I signed my first um, academy contract at Saracens. Um, so I just, one day it was like April Fool's and beforehand I, I was speaking to my parents about like my options and I was thinking, oh, I just want to... Maybe just go part time for a little bit and just see how rugby goes, blah blah blah. And my dad was like, "No, no way, you're not. You can't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. Um, so you have to." Part time? Yeah, yeah, not even part time. And like, you can't do it. You have to. He said.
1: Oh, that's funny.
0: The deal we made was that you 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 stay at school. <laughs> so, anyway, I agreed, and I'm very happy that he talked me into it. But I agreed to do that, then. It was around about April time. It was, it, was, it was April 1st, so it was April Fool's Day. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to have another joke with my dad. Um, so I sent my dad an email. So I was like, uh, hello, dad, I hope you're well. Um, I've come to the decision that um, I don't want to study at uni. I just want to be a full-time professional rugby player. I know this is not the decision that you want for me, but I hope you respect my decision um lots of love Mara. <laughs> my dad didn't speak to me for three days
1: <laughs> I he know you must have given the man a heart attack <gasps>
0: he said he told me he couldn't sleep he was like i couldn't sleep for three days Yeah,
1: that's a terrible april Fool's. how are you gonna
0: do that <laughs> then he was like when he when he was um when, when i eventually called him because he was was not to me so when I eventually <laughs> called him I was like oh it's a joke you're like wow that's not funny you're <laughs> <was Yeah>. like you're <laughs> thinking what am I supposed to tell my friends
1: <laughs> that's a decent that's a decent joke to be fair that's a de- that's one to get get a Nigerian parent they will not find that funny at all and how was
0: the relationship between like yourself and your brother um showing it because you're both professional well, you were professional footballers um uh the difference in age is not that significant and you're kind yeah. of doing similar journeys but in yeah, just
1: years you know. between us um and we we grew up playing football together so you know we're very much connected through the game we're different personalities he's a lot more kind of introverted um I'm a lot more sort of extrovert want to discover new things um but to be honest I think when I got into the professional game which obviously was much later than him. I think my brother signed his first pro contract at 16 or maybe 18, maybe 18 at the latest. I, I wasn't really pro until I was like 22 uh, and I went to America. Um, so my brother really helped me to understand the sort of uh, the dark side of the prof- not the dark side, but the ins and outs of the professional game, you know, how to deal with managers who don't want to play you, you know, how to deal with sitting on the bench, the contracts, you know, the the psychological things that people don't really talk about in the professional game, but it's every day. It's there. It's a competitive environment. You know, it's not about, Oh, you know, eight, 11 girls rocking up and, and and all being the Brady bunch. Like when you get into professional environment, you're fighting for your place, you're fighting for contracts. So he really helped me to understand that. And, um, he 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 was great in terms of advising me around those kind of things, and we just really support each other, you know. He he was big for me in terms of putting women's football on his platform. So once once he showed respect towards women's football, other people then were like, "Ah, oh, what's that's your sister? Okay, cool." Um, so he he's he's a really he's really important, and even now we have lots of chats around. Just different things in the business side of the game, you know. He's smart guy, so you know we have such we have great conversations um, about many things in the game that can can improve. I was speaking to him the other day about actually about like, as I said to you, more more players being engaged with owners and um, you know being part of the sort of business decision making process.
0: Another part of which I found interesting in your book was. The comparison of, of like, your lives in in different scenarios, not necessarily you and, you, you and your brother's lives, but, like, your life in Nigeria compared to your life in, in Birmingham. Because uh, correct me if I'm getting the facts wrong, but in Birmingham, you grew up on an estate. Yes. Um, and in Nigeria, your father was held one of the most <laughs> senior political positions in the land he was he was a senator Um, so how how did you how did you find especially going at that young age from a situation where it's a fairly humble life in Birmingham Mm -hmm. to a life of wealth in in Nigeria
1: that's a great question I think um, I think if anything goes to show that you know growing up in the UK as a black British person is difficult you know well it was difficult and it still is i guess and no one really cares where you come from in you know in terms of nigeria no one really cares like cuz you got you got to find your way here you know um so there there was two different lives i think by the time so i grew up in an estate from sort of um younger age up until maybe 10 or 11 then we moved um still in the same area but we moved to like a bigger house um it was probably a lot less dangerous as well in terms of like you know people and um so life improved you know improved in terms of our living situation um and by the time i went to nigeria my dad was becoming a senator i was 12. um but it was still a distinction between you know working class life and my dad's life Um, And I think that's what made it quite difficult for me because, you know, at the time my dad becoming a senator, um, he was in the public eye, he was in the spotlight. We got, you know, we got to the inauguration and I described this in my book and it was just a chaotic experience for me. Um, And um, well, for the the family. And um, I just didn't, I didn't feel assimilated into that culture. I, I wanted to go home. <laughs> I just wanted to go home and be go back to my normal, quite simple, you know, playing football, going to school, I, on my, you know, my on my road that I'd always known since I was a kid. Um so I, I just remember feeling very disturbed by the fact that, you know, I don't really I don't really connect with Nigerian culture at that age. Um, and not to mention the fact that you know people people quite can quite easily spot when you're when you're um oibo you know when mm. you're like you're not from nigeria really oh,
0: tell just by looking at you
1: it's just tell. so that that was that was also something that i kind of had to figure out um, and it was really only until i got to university that i was like oh okay like this is i met other nigerians um who you know either lived in Nigeria and came over to to London for university or grew up here and were like me as British Nigerians and that's when I really started to understand the beauty of you know Nigeria and Nigerian culture and you know traveling back to Nigeria and so it took me a little while took me a little while
0: because you also talk about um This hyphenated identity piece, which is about basically saying like how you are a a Nigerian British individual. You're both Nigerian. You're both British, and also you even touched on it a little bit earlier with like not really feeling at peace with either side of 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 the coin. Um, And I think it's interesting because like. Nigerian culture is is very different to British culture Mm -hmm. and and therefore British culture is very different to Nigerian culture. Mm -hmm. But Nigerian British culture is also different to Nigerian culture and British culture, if you understand what I
1: mean. That's Uh, what's kind of interesting about the hyphenated conversation because it's always a balancing act in in mm -hmm. terms of who you are and your identity. And it actually brought it into more, and you will understand this, playing for England brings it into even even sharper focus. Cause it's like, who's that? Like, you know, and you, you know, I don't know about you, but I always felt like I had to almost overdo my love for England, just so that people wouldn't be like, but she's Nigerian though, but she's Nigerian though. You know, Mm. so, and I got over that, that was silly um, and probably a bit insecure for me but um, I think playing for England for a long time brings that identity into focus because you're all, you you know, you're often described as the Nigerian born England player. Um, And my name's Eniola Luko. Yeah. It's quite clearly not an English name. So um, that identity piece, I think is a very interesting conversation. And I think, it's one that needs to be had and it's definitely a platform that I, you know, I want to create and that conversation and a brand that I want to create around, you know, embracing all sides of who we are, um, embracing the multiple identities that that we have, you know, whether it's the fact that I really love having a roast on a Sunday sometimes, which is very British, but I equally love, you know, uh, Gary and Okra and, uh, you know, Jalop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I love both. But yeah. a lot of the time we think we have to kind of fit into well this is this is what I should kind of talk like and think like and um we kind of need to banish all that I think.
0: And like so my, my full name is Ogade Amaro Itoje. Ogade Amaro Miles Etoje. Ogada
1: uh, Ogada.
0: Okay, okay, okay. Uh, and like, uh, sorry, what does it
1: mean?
0: Uh, it means God is the greatest.
1: Ah, amen.
0: <laughs> amen. Um, and growing up, like on numerous occasions, almost every every class, every register that I'll go, I'll uh-huh. be in, okay. there'll be in, be, og, og ogie, ogie, <laughs> I'll 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 um Ma- Mario, <laughs> I'll get like almost I'll be like it's it's Mario, <laughs> you just call me Mario, and I realized after a period of time, after a period of time like so my, my everyone called me Mario like great, so I, but. Like the repetitive the repetitive nature of mm-hmm. people getting my name wrong. Mm-hmm. At school, at class, uh people that I meet, uh people like even the simple M-A-R-O full, oh, full nice. letters, people still call me. And if
1: any, it's like any, that's it. Any <laughs> that's it. Um
0: so th- there was a point where I was well, I was moving school and I was like I told my mum, I was like, oh, I want them to call me um Miles at this school. Uh, and it was I remember saying that and it was just because I couldn't be bothered with people mm. messing up my name. Mm. And my mum in a cavalier fashion, if you want them to call you Miles, call let them call you Miles. <laughs> um
1: they understood. She probably
0: but, understood. But I that but I, I, I didn't I did I didn't um change it up or anything. But it was just, like, I just remember I that being that. a constant throughout my, my childhood, which I'm sure you and every, like, Nigerian, British person can, can relate.
1: Well, I, I, when I was younger, I told people to call me Eddie. I mean, first of all, I had two identity crises. So, well, not crises, but, like, questions. I was like, I'm a bit of a tomboy, mm-hmm. so I kind of really want to be one of the boys. So call me Eddie call me a boy's name. And cause it kind of sounded like any, I was like, oh, just call me Eddie. And I look back and I was like, why did I do that? You know, it's, but it's, um. I think it's a very common thing. I think it's, a, I had a, I had an amazing conversation, filmed conversation with Afua Hirsch. Um, really?
0: and, she,
1: and she, I think she, she, she wrote in her book that she told people to call her Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is nowhere near afwa at
0: all i can't imagine afwa being called caroline just
1: well, I, and i asked her i was like caroline like and she was just like i can't remember what she said but she i think it's a thing that a lot of you know british nigerians find difficult that it's like look like this is painful at this point so just call me something you know something just much easier for you
0: and what is your, what's your relationship with Nigeria and, and the continent now?
1: It's amazing. Well, now it's amazing. Um, and it, it, it kind of took me, as I said, you know, until I got to uni to really kind of embrace what it was all about um, and just that side of myself. It was almost like a dormant part of me that just needed to be awakened and really, I think the best way to awaken it is to travel to to Nigeria. And fortunately for me, my family moved back at some po- at a point, um, so I was I had a good excuse to go back to Nigeria frequently.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and obviously that was great because you know I explored all of Lagos and kind of built friend groups there. But it's now gone wider to the point where I just I want to just travel Africa and just. What, see. What,
0: what? Have you been anywhere else?
1: Yes. So I've kind of got like a task on my you know I've got like a a, every year I have to travel to somewhere new in Africa so the last place I was in was Ghana um I've been to Uganda Kenya uh Kenya on a safari um South Africa on a safari um where else um yeah that's it I think yeah that's it Uh, Botswana's on my list and I really want to go to Rwanda which is a place a growing I think it's it's Doing very well, Veranda. So yeah. um there's a lot there's a lot of places that I still need to hit up and Morocco. Um so I think Africa's good for the soul. I think it's such a, a place, it's a continent that is so rich with everything you need in life. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's it's definitely one of the things I want to do. Continue. Yeah,
0: I, I definitely would like to do the same. The only places that I've been within the continent, I've been to Nigeria loads. Um, and besides nigeria it's it 's only South africa because of because of <clears throat> because of rugby, but I feel as if like Africa as a continent is one of those places where it's a lot of people don 't really see it as a holiday destination mm. due, due to the the way it 's been marketed the way mm-hmm. it 's been represented in the press and in the news and Mm-hmm. is it's, it's it's often seen or depicted like this poverty stricken yeah. continent where where there's n- where no good only hungry
1: it's not it even, it even the poverty stricken part because i think people go to other poverty stricken parts that are very touristy yeah it's more the, de- the the fact that people feel endangered like you know they're going to a place where endangered species are gonna just you know kill you i think <laughs> I'm just like that's way that perception is just way skewed Um, and the media definitely have a huge part to play in that and I think actually one of the things that the music industry has done in terms of Africa to the world is change that perception Africa's now become cool you know one of the reasons you know I was in Ghana at new year which was probably the best time to go in terms of seeing the impact um, that Ghanaian culture is having around the world. There were so many Americans. I mean, at one point, I thought I was in Atlanta. Like, there was just so many people from America in, in Ghana. And I know it was a huge campaign, a year of return, but so many Ghanaians, so many Nigerians were there. The parties were amazing. The, the culinary i
0: so jealous because... the
1: best time. And I was so proud of Ghana, you know?
0: Yeah, like, um, like Nigeria... Lagos and like Ghana, Accra, like Christmas slash New Year's time, oh. it turns into Miami. <laughs> like, and a lot of people don't, don't, well, I think more people are, are realizing that now. And that's why I think we're we'll seeing more and more people go. But I'm always so, so sad because that's like in the hot period of rugby. So I can, I can never go at that
1: time. But that's the thing. I, I do think that the tourist industry, Like Africa needs to see itself as a tourist destination first. And then it will start to authentically become it. I think that's where Ghana is really leading the way because it sees itself as a place that can receive other cultures. Um, You know, Kenya, where I went on a safari, incredible. I met so many people from different parts of the world. I don't understand why Lagos doesn't see itself like that. You know I, I know there's been plans to kind of make lagos a bit like dubai because it's obviously on the water but there's no reason why that can't continue to grow and happen um, and obviously south africa is a huge tourist destination in morocco too so i i sometimes get frustrated with nigeria because i'm like why you know there must be loads of beautiful spots of nigeria but it's like they, they hide it it's like bring it to life bring it
0: yeah, um, like I think it's very easy to get frustrated by Nigeria, to be honest. Um,
1: That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, it really is.
0: <laughs> Another thing which I think anyone who reads your book can tell from the get-go is the role your faith plays in your in your life. Um, could you just elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I'm a Christian, um, Christian and proud and um, have been, you know, very much exposed to church since I was young. And again, going back to my mom, my mom never really like imposed um, church, the church experience on me. It was more, you know, this is the faith system that um, she's prescribed to and I saw how it impacted her so positively um so i was in church choir i was you know i used to you know um be in church youth group so my church experience growing up was very positive um and i think as you get older you you tend to form your own relationship with god and you you tend to form your own relationship in terms of faith and how that operates practically every day um and i and i think particularly in sport for me I've been in a lot of situations where I just feel out of control and ultimately when you feel out of control you feel vulnerable and that's where my faith comes in it's like you know and it says it in in the bible that when you when you're weak you're actually very strong because that's where the faith system kicks in it's like that's when you start exercising the muscle of faith so um I've seen a lot of I've been in a lot of situations where my faith has really strengthened me and it's provided me with a, a greater perspective on the situation. And, um, that's, that's how it's operated for me. It might, it might be completely different for somebody else, but certainly in sport, that's how it's operated for me. It's allowed me to say, do you know what? It's already, it's already been written in the stars. It's always, it's already been accomplished. My destiny has already been decided. The best I can do is just, play and enjoy and, and give my best. Um, and how
0: did you feel uh, navigating all of that within the, like the pro- professional sport environment? Because obviously faith is, is, is a deeply personal thing. like mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. And God, whereas often like, uh, if you, you can express your faith, um, and others can look at it in some type of way or feel some type of way about it yeah. have you ever had um, any of those kind of situations where
1: well that's a really good question because it depends it's, it's depended on where I was so when I played in America literally I think eight players would pray before a game it was like part culture of the team we would pray we would you would, you know, and you see it with musicians, you know, prayer is very much part of American culture. So we would pray before a game, we'd kind of give the game to God, and we'd we'd go out there. So I, I felt very open about, I mean, I am open about my faith, but I felt very much like it was something that had to be, you know, shared with the rest of the team. In England, as you say, it, it, it's almost feel, it almost you have to tread thinly because people feel like you're imposing on them when you talk about God. People feel like you're imposing on them when you talk about faith. And you're not, you're just sharing what helps you. But you're very conscious that people don't want to feel like they're being preached to.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's funny, when my book came out, a lot of my close friends were like, raw, we didn't know you were so, like, we didn't know you were so into God. And I was like, yeah. I've kind of mentioned it but you know you you I'm not going to I'm not going to try kind yeah, exactly. of impose on you if it's a yeah. conversation you're interested in and you want to ask me how I manage I, I'm I'm going to share it with you you know in Italy obviously catholicism is huge in Italy um and it's very similar to christianity so again you know when I talked about my faith in Italy it was like oh we get it you know that they're, they're very much you know, they're very kind of almost um, ritualistic with their religion, which I'm not. But, you know, when you're praying and you're talking about God, it was very much part of Italian culture. So it really, it was really different depending on where I was. Um, But I think in the UK, it's become a kind of culture that's quite, you know, people are easily offended. And you've got to be so careful what you say. And, you know, if you say this, that person might be offended. And it's like, no, this is just my experience i mean you can take it or leave it you know i don't know how it's been for you whether you have you know any experiences like that
0: um i haven't had um i haven't had any negative experiences per se with regards to that but i feel very conscious of um not trying to project on other people um but in the same way, I'm not trying to project on other people. I I don't really want to hear other people telling me that what I believe in is right. is, is not validated or right, right, false or right. whatever. Like I think it's, it's yeah. I think it's, sometimes it can be like a like a difficult um, line to follow. But generally, um, it's quite. I think it's quite. haven't really had any significant, significant issues with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I remember, um, I, I was talking about an extract of my book that talked about, um, you know, I, I really struggled with my faith when I'd pray about, you know, succeeding in something and then I'd fail. And, you know, I talked about the fact that, you know, destiny is already predestined. Yeah, And I remember one guy, he's actually quite well known, I won't say his name, but I remember him DMing me and he just DMed me a whole, uh, like, it was almost abusive, like, how dare you, you know, as a person with a platform, you know, talk about religion and sport and sell this idea that people, and I was like, look, like, because, you know, he he has a very science focused belief. Um, as an atheist and and, you know I would never attack him for that but equally he was attacking me for having my view and I was like wow like and he was really deeply hurt about it like I'm talking paragraphs you know and so that's that sometimes makes you push back and think okay let me just internalize this I'll pray in my house I'll pray on my way to the game but I'm not trying to do it publicly you know and upset people but that's also not part of the faith you know he yeah. talks about evangelism, talking about um, you know, spreads sharing it with the world. So it is a thin line, you're right.
0: And I think that even highlights the, the hypocrisy of um, the, this like so-called liberal society in which we live in, because yeah. really, um, this society very often is only ever liberal when you agree with the, mm-hmm. the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go against the status quo, that's all of a sudden, all these liberal ideas go out the window and they start attacking you for it. So um, it's... Yeah, no, it's I,
1: I think that you've, you've summed it up perfectly. And I think I've seen that, certainly, whenever I try and get involved on, in a political conversation. You know, I see people who are quote-unquote liberal or you know, left is is are some some of the most vicious when it comes to um, almost shaming the other side about their view, and I, and I find it quite disturbing because it's like you're meant you know on one hand it's meant to be kind of as you said lib- liberalism and 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 you know thinking about people and and you know, from all different backgrounds is meant to be a shared experience but. You almost feel like you can't go against the status quo or have a different view and you'll be attacked and that's certainly been my experience um, in terms of talking about current politics and i know that we you know i know we're living in quite a divisive political world right now but it's still a democratic one
0: yeah
1: you know it's still one that you know wh- whatever your political belief or your religious beliefs you should be able to be comfortable in sharing it without being attacked or without being labelled. I think there's a lot of labelling. You know, I've been very open about, um, in 2019 election voting Tory, and people don't understand that, you know, during my darkest hour, really, during my darkest time in my career with my case against the FA, where my whole career was in the balance, where racism, um, institutional racism was in the balance, It was conservative MPs that made sure it was held to account. Yet there'll be people that say the conservative party is racist. So me voting for a conservative MP, it was conservative party, which is a democratic right, which most of the country voted that way. As a black woman, you're labeled as a sellout. You're labeled as a, oh my God, she's, she's not one of us. When actually, when you drill down to one of the reasons why I went that way is because actually they did everything they they possibly could to expose racism, to hold it to account. So this is why it's just ridiculous to just label people because of what they believe in, because actually there's quite valid reasons why they may do that. So I think we need to move away from that as much as possible. We have to allow people to be comfortable in a space where they just... um, have a different view and it's objective it doesn't have to be you're cancelled because you you think this now i'm not saying you know i'm not saying for one minute you know say offensive things but i think where we have where we may may have different views it's important to be very respectful of that you know i think very long answer
0: (laughs) yeah i think you raised an interesting issue with regards to um how black people are often aligned to like the left like political I- ideology and and we see like similar things in 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 America with how the mm. like the democrats have, have mm-hmm. arguably been like taking uh, the black their black voters for granted for mm-hmm. for for decades if not years and i think it's, i think it's interesting because I feel it is a bit reductionist if you just align like black people to yes. think in one block way or th- think in um, tell them as as as, as, a, as a herd of of people yeah. I feel yeah. as if um there's there's definitely like issues and policies that you would like either agree or disagree with. With the conservative government, or or to Tory, or Labour, or whatever, but to paint to 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 to, to deny the individual, the thought process, and the decision making to um, go either way, I think it's it's it's, it's, it's I think is is going into a little bit dangerous like territory. I don't think I think um, I think you know I think we're we we, could, we can do better. And I think you, you, won't, you won't always agree with the policies. You won't always agree with mm-hmm. um, things that they do or say. And there may be times where they do uh, um, act in ways in which um, that, that you don't like. But I don't know, I, I feel a bit uncomfortable when I hear like like black people getting angry at other black people for mm-hmm. a particular way. Because yeah. cause to be honest, both parties have have done us wrong. Both parties have done us wrong. The conservatives are no angels, but the, la- the labor haven't always been saints either. so um. I mean look,
1: I, I think it's one of those things where I think, and this is one of the things that you know I'm very passionate about black excellence. like I'm so passionate about black excellence. Like, the feeling I get when I see you know other black people exceeding and and succeeding. So it, it kind of upsets me when people say, oh, she's a sellout, she doesn't care about the culture, or she's made it, and so she's will Tory." But actually, what you've just said is so important. It's like, we, we cannot, you know, reduce ourselves to voting patterns based on the colour of our skin. Like, we need to do better than that. We need to educate ourselves, understand. And this is the conversation that's going on in America right now. When P. Diddy comes out and says, what are we getting in exchange for the vote that you've been taking for granted for however many years? That's a valid question, because the black vote is 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 important, and it 's like are we actually analyzing our power, or are we just doing it because our grandmother did it, our grandfather did it, our mom and dad voted this way? You know, even within my own family, we vote differently, but we can have a conversation about it and justify it you know so i think I think as a as a black community, this whole cancel culture it, it, it needs to be. It needs to be, I think we need to get to a point where it's like, how are we going to excel as a culture? How are we going to excel as people? And what political party is going to help us get us there? Rather than just kind of be like, well, I'm black and I'm voting this way. I'm Nigerian and I'm voting, you know, it it has to be a more layered conversation.
0: I also think... um... Even talking about like p- political parties, I also think party politics also gets in the way of
1: yeah.
0: like, correct thinking sometimes. Party yeah. politics, like, not. I think this coronavirus has, has has showed us that you have to sometimes you have to face the problem that's in front of you because. So, for example, if this Tory government, um, if this Tory government during this coronavirus stick to stick. To to right-wing economic policies, like people will be on the street, um, right. and they didn't um, for for the most part. They they've they've probably gone as far left as you would go. They
1: possibly if, can,
0: if, if 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 you're talking about like their economic spending, and so I think with 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 politics, I think it's a lot of the time party politics gets in the way of making the right decision.
1: And politics um, is about a snapshot of the time you know, as you rightly say, you know, the the Conservative Party had to, with all their failings, I mean, I'm not trying to sit here saying, that, I mean, it, I think it's been a failure, objectively speaking, I think they've failed in many aspects. But I think on the economic front, they, they you know, they've had, they rolled out a socialist system. And that shows a level of adaptability that is commendable. So it's a snapshot of the time, you know, if you had to vote now based on you know what economic policy needs to be rolled out you there won't be a difference between labor and conservative so i i I do think that again voting has to be based on okay what how is this going to benefit me my community my people but also you know what is what's going on in the world what's the snapshot of the world rather than it just being based upon sort of dividing lines and i can't agree with you because you vote a different way as you say it gets in the way of just positive you know objective thinking
0: yeah so there's two isms that I would like to talk to you about uh the first one is sexism um which I'm I'm no doubt you have been subject to like how have you felt even rewinding a few years um how did you feel what were your experiences of sexism playing a very stereotypically male-dominated sport?
1: Um yeah, I think I think sexism is kind of the reality in a way, um, in terms of being sort of a minority sport in a in a in a predominantly male-driven world. Um and ultimately it's it's one of those where it's kind of like you just gotta crack on with you know what you love to do which is playing football and ultimately i think women's football has now got to a place where we're not trying to sell ourselves to people who don't care about it Mm -hmm. we're trying to we're trying to play for the people that respect it i think for the longest time it was like oh please respect us and oh please and it's like, no, we're good at what we do. We're good at football. We're, we're, we're great at football. Some of us are better than, you know, the boys that we played with. So I think there's been a bit of a mind shift. And I think the Olympics helped that. I think a lot of people went, whoa, these girls are good. Um, and then all of a sudden it becomes a completely different conversation. So I think sexism has almost become the status quo in terms of our existence within the sport game. But it's definitely changed a lot in terms of, how just people respect women playing sport. But you still you still see it on social media, people yeah. and particularly, you know, I've had it a lot in terms of in the media world, whenever I've I've gone on TV and talked about men's the men's game. You can't you can do nothing you can do no right, you know, to a lot of people because you're a woman. It's like the minute you open your mouth, it's like, what is she doing? Like how, de- why is she there? And, mm. um, and, you know, again, you know, those, those men that say that they're just, they're just not ready for, they're not ready for the progression of media, you know?
0: Is that what you experienced when you went on match of the day for the first time?
1: Um, you know what match of the day was, uh, I think a bit of a game changer because First of all, for them to ask me on the show, I think they really thought that I was good enough to be on the show. And I recognized at that point that I was the first female footballer to go on the show. And it was a huge opportunity for me to break that kind of, no woman's ever been on the show before. Because once that happens and you do it well, it then becomes easier for the next person after you. So I think we kind of worked together on that in terms of it being a sort of marquee moment and now you see a lot of women on you know men's channels. Um, so I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm, I always try and put myself in a position where I can be the first to do it and open the door. Um, I think it's a very powerful position to be in in terms of not just doing it for you, but doing it for you know many other women. Um, so the match of the day was a very positive experience i did I did feel though that I had to be that much more prepared. Then the guys, um, they can kind of take it for granted. I can't. So I really had to, I really had to prepare, I really had to take it seriously. I can't just rock up, you know, 20 minutes before the show. You know, I I did three days of research. And some people say, Yeah, but that's a bit much, any, but that's what made me feel ready as a woman, as the first woman, to do what I did, to 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 do the show. And ultimately our margin for error is minimal as women. That's just the reality.
0: And have, ha, how have you felt the progression of like the women's game um, in in a football sense? Because I, I'm no expert in football, but the last world cup that the, that that the last female world cup compared to the one beforehand, I thought like the standard, like was astronomically like better. Mm-hmm. Like, but I think, that may correct me if i'm wrong but that may have something to do with like more and more international um federations associations like taking the women's game more and more seriously and obviously that's creating a better product on the field
1: yeah there's been a lot of investment and particularly since the olympics in 2012 there's been a lot of investment in the game and with investment players can be professional players can quit their job players can focus on, you know, just becoming a better athlete, better footballer. And that's really had a knock on effect on the quality of the game. Um, And then sort of on the international level, the the investment from FIFA, from UEFA has been incredible. So, well, incredible. I think it's been much better than it has before, um, which has allowed you to have the, see these big sort of showcase events. Um, But I, you know I was saying to someone the other day, you know that if you were to put one million down on a property today and in ten years' time it was worth ten million you'd be quite happy right that's what women 's football that's the kind of in, 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 uh, investment progression that women 's football has shown
0: yeah
1: you know I remember paying to play now it's attracting investment of ten million now. Some would say that that's nothing compared to the men's game, but we need to stop comparing it to the men's game. It's a different game to the men's game. So I think if the last 10 years is anything to go by, the next 10 years is going to be even greater, even more exponential in its growth. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited to be part of that as a sporting director. Um, And I think we need to view the game like that. We need to view the game as a brand, as as a project that is an investment vehicle for it to, to for the product to get complete, get better. I think if we keep comparing it to, well, the men's game doesn't, yeah, the men's game, well, we, we don't need it to be the men's game. Yeah.
0: Um, it's also well-documented, like, the racism that you've experienced, um, both in life and online. But I'd like to touch on the online stuff particularly on social media like what's your process in terms of like dealing with that like trying to block that out
1: well i use the block button (laughs) with 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 much enjoyment um i i think up until now i i kind of just you know it's something that i've i thought oh it's just social media you know people People say dumb stuff and you get race, you know, you get the odd racist tweet. But now I think Twitter's become so toxic and it's almost like it's a competition of the worst thing people can say. I do think now it's 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 a matter of energy. You know, if you're sat there and you're reading people just writing you the most negative things and they have no idea who you are, at some point as a human being, that does get to you. It it, it messes up your energy um and so i made a decision the other day i was like i'm going private like i'm done like i don't need to i don't need to actually have this energy coming in my life Mm -hmm. i think the purpose of twitter has gone out the window um i think everybody gets their backup when they're on twitter because it's like oh i'm gonna be attacked um so i've gone private I, i block people routinely and and that's that's it because i just i just don't really want that energy anymore instagram's much more happier place i think um
0: i've got my worst um uh like racial abuse on on instagram Instagram? really and and it's like i shouldn't be smiling but it's actually a kind of a funny story so um this was back in what was the last men's world cup what year was that no 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 not rugby football Twi- fo- fo- 2018, 2018,
1: excuse me
0: twenty eighteen yeah, so it was during the World cup, and Nigeria played Argentina, so i was at the time I was at the Adidas store i was had a store visit there, and um I was like, okay, let me post a i think no they once by the way, i said, let me um let me post a, a photo in support of Nigeria who about to play um, Argentina. So I like, took a picture of like me praying, um, me fully well knowing, like living in hope that Nigeria are going to win. Obviously they had Messi and co so it was stacked against us. But anyway, and my caption was like this like long prayer of of Nigeria beating um uh, beating Argentina and I was taken aback. I never knew I had so much Spanish people on my on my feed. <laughs> and they were all abusing me in um in Spanish. I had to like translate it. <laughs> I had to like translate it to find out what they were saying. And it was um it was, it was crazy
1: that's the thing like you know I think I think social media has created this space for people to just offload their hatred yeah I guess it was always there but you can't get away with it routinely on the street so it's created a, a, a space for it but it's like it's disturbing I mean I, sometimes you can kind of you know you can laugh at it because some of it's ridiculous but Ultimately, like you know, I think some of these platforms need to do something about it because it is like it's just it's racism. And it's
0: and it's it's almost they've they've created a a safe space a safe space. A safe for space, for yeah. To,
1: for nothing happens
0: happen, because nothing can happen to them. They can be anonymous if they want to be anonymous, mm-hmm. um, and they can pretty much say or do as they like. Uh, for, and it not, nothing there'll be no remorse or outcome out of it
1: yeah no absolutely it's um it's i I definitely think it's something that we need to manage as as high profile people um and not kind of just flip it off and go "Oh well you know um either you know either we manage how much we're on it or we manage how much we're seeing that actually um and it's not really about having a thick skin or thin skin that's not really what it's about but i do think energies are really important you know, I don't think we should be on meet social media for a long time each day. Anyway, I think we need to kind of how much, but um, you know, these are much. This this is much. This should be more of our social media. What we're doing now, yeah. you know, as opposed to sitting there just open, sitting there like a sitting duck, open for people to just hurl abuse at you that you would never take if it was on the street.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the final question I have for you, Annie, what does success look like for you?
1: Oh, that is a whole another conversation. Um success for me, I think, is um multifaceted. So, you know, it depends on like for for me, this period has really exposed for me that not everything is about achievement and the next thing and the next thing because I haven't I don't know what the next two months looks like. So I think success for me is having you know, a job that really motivates me every day. Um, and, and obviously meeting targets within that job. But if you get up every day and you're well paid, but you hate what you do, is it worth it? It's you know, so being able to transition into a job coming out of football that I loved, obviously, and, and actually really enjoy what I'm doing is, is, is a huge success for me. And hopefully I can, you know, I can achieve some of the targets I want to achieve in that but success for me is also just really healthy relationships, like, you know, healthy friendships, meaningful friendships, um, meaningful relationships with my family. Um, But also just like being able to create as well, you know, having platforms, you know, like this, you know, I've got, I've got, I want to start a brand. I want to, you know, do more stuff with the book. Um, You know, I want to, have healthy conversations you know i I had an idea pop into my head today just today actually because i was kind of sad about you know that another guy black guy that's just been killed from police brutality yeah and my best friend called me and my best friend is um she's white and she was as disturbed as i was you know but she said to me you know what i i don't feel like i don't necessarily feel like i can express how much it hurts me too because i think there's a lot of black people that make white people feel almost responsible for that and there is white privilege and there is you know there is a lot of um you know ignorance but until we were able to have conversations with everyone about this um it's it's just it will just only be a black a black issue so I, i had an idea i was like i should interview my best friend about this on IG live post it and have other people see that actually this is a, this is a, you know, it's black lives matter, but it's, it's also important for, for white people to be engaged in that discourse who are just as outraged, who are just as upset. Um, and that would stimulate that conversation. Cause I do think there's a lot of white people that just don't feel like they can, you know, express their, their bewilderment when they're aware of actually their privilege you know so it it came into my head I was like I've got to do it I've got to do it at some point um so there's lots of different things that I want to do create my own platforms um that I also think would you know would lead to more success for me and so yeah it's the future's the future's exciting and bright you know
0: future's bright amen what about
1: you what about you you've done amazing i'm just i'm so kind of i've I've obviously followed you for a while and i obviously know you're british nigerian and you know we share very similar background
0: what is success for me um i feel as if like i would so success for me there's obviously like individual and sporting goals like like getting as many caps for England, like winning trophies for, for both England, Saracens. Um, like hopefully, a big one for me is hopefully winning a World Cup at the next World Cup. That's the biggest that be amazing. Um, Then obviously with the Lions, hopefully tour with the Lions this su- uh, next summer. But besides those ones, I think for me, it's about, um, I think it's about feeling fulfilled feeling fulfilled and feeling like happy and present because I feel sometimes we can take being there's often there's always a strive for more a strive to achieve a strive to do X, Y, and Z, to be busy yeah but you often don't reflect on what's actually happening in the moment um during during lockdown actually I was I've I've obviously we've had a bit of time to reflect and I I I thought to myself like if I'm 25 now if I if if I spoke to myself when I was 15 I'll be extremely happy with everything that I'm doing now everything that I've got everything that I'm doing now I'll be like I'll take it with both hands so I think often I think but i think it's also a double edged sword because i think often with successful people part of maybe what pushes them to be successful is a constant drive to mm-hmm. for more to achieve more not, to never be content um but i think just to be just to feel um fulfillment both in my like relationships but also with, with within myself
1: yeah no I, and um I don't think there's anything wrong with that drive. I think, as you said, though, it's just being able to check in into the present and be very grateful, you know, because I think sometimes your next thing, your next thing can can, can distract from all the great things that you have um, in the now. And I think when you wake up and, and you operate from a place of gratitude, you are just much happier anyway.
0: Your outlook is is totally yeah. different
1: different that's one of the things I've really found hard about this period that there's just so much like and I get it you know people are dying and it's depressing but if you're waking up every day and you can breathe and you're healthy how can you not be grateful if there's people dying you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. that gives you a perspective for that and you know there was so many days, in, in the early part when it was really bad, when it was like thousand people dying a day, when I was just happy that I wasn't coughing. You know, I was just happy that I was like could go for a run and and feel okay. Um, yeah. And when you operate from that place, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to do anything magnificent. I'm just happy that I'm I can go for a run. Yeah. So if you build that into your life every day, whatever you're trying to do, that's fine. But actually, if that doesn't come, you're still kind of content anyway. I think contentment is something that people don't really know what it looks like because they're always trying to chase something else. Um, so this period has really helped me with that.
0: And that's also reminded me of something that you that you said. I think it was your mum who told you in your book when you were, I think, you were going through a period, I don't know if it was a change <laughs> of courage, uh, yeah. but... Was almost like seeking validation either from yeah. selection or yeah. from the coach or whatever. And she said something along the lines of like, "Any your validation doesn't come from
1: yeah.
0: any of these, any of these these people. If you look for them for validation, then you'll always be wanting like your your validation comes from yourself and God."
1: My my my, my mom dropped gems. <laughs> <laughs> give, me, give
0: me one of these. Give me one of these. Give me one of these. <laughs>
1: serious, And the thing is, that conversation, she was actually quite angry because I was, I became so obsessed with, you know, this coach that didn't like me, this coach that was, you know, I didn't didn't understand it, that she was just like, Annie, like, why are you putting all your energy into this man? Like, your destiny is bigger. You're God's child. Like, you're going to be okay. And even if this doesn't work out, watch, watch where you're going to go from here. And she was right. You know, when I say to people, you know, the things that have happened to my life since I've, I've quit being, well, since I, I wasn't picked from the England team, I, d- I would never ever have been able to achieve them if it wasn't for that door shut in. So sometimes we focus in too much on, oh, what, you know, the validation that comes from outside, but it starts from you all the time, every single time it starts from you.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much, Annie. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. conversation. I loved it. Thank you for listening. Make sure you leave a review and let me know what else you would like to hear on Pearl Conversations.